Scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He made his way in on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He was coming in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and that great prophecy, your king shall come to you, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of the crowd, of course, had their expectation of what Jesus would do based on their faulty assumption of what it meant for him to be the Messiah, not the Messiah that he was, but the Messiah that they wanted. And he came in to Jerusalem with the crowds you know, swirling around him, coming out from the city and, and following him in from the countryside, crying out, Hosanna, save us, with this expectation that he would ultimately restore the kingdom to Israel and drive out the Romans and be for them a political Messiah, not one who would bring the spiritual salvation that they needed. So Jesus made his way into Jerusalem and he made his way for the temple, to the temple. And last week we looked at verse 11 very briefly. I just referenced it and I said, we're going to have to come back to this next week because this is such an essential verse for what's about to happen. So let me just read verse 11 for us again. Verse 11 of Mark chapter 11 says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, you read that verse, and perhaps you've read that verse you know, your entire life and just thought, okay, he was just kind of checking things out. Um, you know, maybe he got in there a little bit late in the day, he knew what he was going to do the next day. He knew he didn't have time to do it there at the end of that day. And so he just kind of scoped things out a little bit, took stock, and, uh, and then left. And at one level, that's true. He was taking stock. 
But he was doing so in a way that from the beginning of Mark, we've been prepared for. See, Mark's gospel begins in Mark chapter 1 in verse 2 with this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. That's the very first half of the second verse in Mark chapter 1. That's a quote from Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for us. Malachi 3, 1 and 2 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then it goes on, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? That's Mark chapter 1. And here we are in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And the Lord has come into his temple. He came into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, Old Testament prophecy. He's entering the temple in fulfillment of Malachi 1, Old Testament prophecy, and he is looking around with intention, with prophetic judgment, because he is the Lord. And the day of his judgment for the temple in Jerusalem has Come. And so we study our text before us this morning, and, and hopefully we do so with a greater sense of the weightiness of the moment for Jerusalem, for this pivot point from the Old Testament into the New, from the people of God being centralized on a particular ethnic group, the Jews, in a particular location, Jerusalem, to the worldwide spread of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ, that not made by hands, life upon life, spiritual temple that is the church. Hopefully we come away from this passage with a greater appreciation for that. But the question we need to ask is, is there any way in which verse 11 and the way in which it unfolds throughout verses 12 through 25 applies to us today? And I I think the answer is yes. A few verses come to mind that lead me to believe that. First of all, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. The people, especially the religious leaders of Israel in the temple, were very confident in their own righteousness. They were confident that they would be able to stand before the Lord whenever he came, knowing that he came to show them favor because of the great things that they had done. And yet, The Lord came to bring judgment on the temple. Another passage that I think forces us to really think about what the judgment of the temple means for his temple on earth today, his church, is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 4, verse 17. Peter again witnessed this. We read that. Peter said to Jesus when they came by the next day and saw the, the fig tree withered, Peter's the one who said, Look, it's withered all the way to the ground. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17 this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter saw Jesus coming to his temple bringing judgment, and in Peter's first epistle, his first letter given to the churches, preserved for us down to this very day, Peter is saying now is the time, this time between Christ's first coming and his final coming, in which judgment is beginning with the house of God. And then there's that great passage in Revelation chapter 1 where John, of course, who also was a witness to what was happening with the tree and in the temple, writes this. John has a vision from the Lord. And John writes in Revelation 1, 12 through the first part of 17, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now you need to understand, you know, Revelation in a way is like a storybook. It gives us pictures to help us understand what the message of Revelation is. The seven lampstands are the seven churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3. The message to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, are the message to the church down to this very day. The one who is standing in the midst of the lampstands, looking around with eyes of fire, is Jesus. He is the Son of Man. It would seem that Jesus is still looking around His temple, His church, that not made with human hands, life upon life, spiritual dwelling place on earth of God. But it's not just the church that he's searching. He's inspecting each and every one of us as individual Christians. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, if you are a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So by his Spirit, Jesus is searching each one of us. What is he looking for? True spiritual fruit. What is he exposing? Hypocrisy. In this passage, what we see Jesus doing is exposing hypocrisy. That dreadful action that we so often fall into, each and every one of us, of being more concerned for the leaves in our lives than we are for the fruit being more burdened to make a show of our faith in Christ than to actually bear the fruit of the Spirit which comes through faith in Christ. Keeping the rituals but lacking reality. Claiming to love God but demonstrating no heartfelt devotion to God. This is the hypocrisy that the Lord of the temple comes to expose. So the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing, or or maybe better said, condemnation of the temple 
in the Old Testament in our passage this morning, the, the, in Mark 11. Um, this time that we're in right now, between Christ's first and second coming, is a time of warning. In, in a way, all of verse 11 is compressed between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And so yeah, we need to take to heart what's happening here. This does apply to us. One day, the Lord of the temple will suddenly come to His temple and all the things we're warned about in our passage this morning will come to pass. All will be judged. All will be judged. Only those found in Christ will endure the great and dreadful day of His coming. So yes, we need to understand what's happening in this passage. We dare not miss it. And the key to understanding what's going on in this passage is understanding what's happening with the fig tree. That seemingly random, some have said petty act on the part of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to curse a tree because it didn't have fruit. But nothing is random in Mark. And nothing was random in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's meaning here. And we need to take it to heart. So three things we're going to look at this morning. First, the barren tree. The barren tree. Second, the barren temple. And then third, the fruit of genuine faith. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning and come before your por- this portion of your word, we're thankful that you've preserved it for us. We ask, O oh God, that you would, by your Spirit, bring conviction Lord, that you would, uh, for those of us who are far too comfortable in our faith, oh God, would you bring uh, conviction and even a a spirit-directed affliction that we might in our hearts be disquieted. But Lord, for those of us who are greatly uh, burdened perhaps and, and, and feeling a weight of Uh, shame that ought not to be there because it's been confessed and brought before you and cleansed. Lord, for those who are afflicted, I am confident that even from this text, they will find comfort. In fact, all of us, O God, as we have the hypocrisy that can so often characterize us, exposed by this passage, are offered a word of grace here at the end, and I pray that you would help us take it to heart. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three things, the barren tree, the barren temple, and the fruit of genuine faith. Let's first take a look at the barren tree, and let me reread for us verses 12 through 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. All right, so fig trees would um, produce two uh, crops or two harvests of figs. The first would come in the spring, and they were, they were little nubs almost. You know, they weren't like the really great harvest that would come in late summer, early fall. That was the one that people were eager to harvest and eager to sell and eager to eat because they were larger and they tasted better. But still, in spring, smaller little figs, they were actually given a, a, had a different Greek name to describe them, would uh, be born. And they were edible. They weren't great. 
But travelers who were looking for something to eat as they made their way could get some sustenance from them. And so, you know, it was common. These were, these were not the, the figs that would become the larger figs later. These grew on the previous year's uh, growth. Okay, so travelers would come along in the spring and they would eat some of these figs. It was common to have that happen. So when Mark says it was not the season for figs, the best explanation I've heard of that is that he's referring to that later harvest that had not yet come. And yet Jesus saw leaves. And so there was the expectation from a distance that he would find those little nubs, those first fruits, those early figs they were referred to, and be able to find something to eat. He came to it, and he didn't find anything. And so he curses it. Now Bertrand Russell, in his uh, Why I Am Not a Christian, says this, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history because he couldn't understand why Jesus would come along and curse this fig tree that through no fault of its own wasn't bearing any figs. But the reality is this is an acted out parable. Throughout Mark especially, we see Major teachings bookended by things that often in this case are acted out in order to demonstrate a reality. We saw this earlier. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Between Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 22, and the end of Mark chapter 10, you had this teaching on Jesus' call. Or Jesus clearly teaching who he is as the Messiah. The disciples acting in some self-centered, selfish way. And then Jesus explaining what it means to follow him. The need to take up your cross and follow him. So you had this cycle of three instances in which this teaching and response and follow-up teaching took place, bookended by those healings. First, a progressive healing of a blind man, and then, and then second, at the tail end, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Okay, so it was a teaching that was surrounded by two actions, two healings, that helped us understand what was helping in between, what was happening in between. And that's what's happening here. You have, you know, the fig tree part one, it's cursing. And then you have the fig tree part two in the latter portion of what we're looking at this morning, observing the fig tree withered. And then in between, you have this teaching concerning the temple. Now, Israel was often referred to in the Old Testament as a fig tree. And their fruit, or lack thereof, in the Old Testament was often signified as reflecting or pointing to God's judgment upon Israel. And so this is not some random petty act on the part of the Lord. He was hungry, and he couldn't find something to eat. This was an acted-out parable. Explaining, demonstrating, showing what was about to happen. The commentator R.T. France says this, A tree in full leaf at Passover is making a promise it cannot fulfill. So, too, is Israel. In other words, the leaves on the fig tree promised one thing, but it had not produced. It was a hypocritical fig tree. And this is an acted out parable exposing the hypocrisy of God's people. So, you know, before we get into the central passage and what's happening in Jerusalem, we need to step back and ask ourselves, is my life bearing fruit in any way? 
Even those first fruits, the little nubs of spiritual growth, the little beginning fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and the like. I'm not saying that if you are a new Christian that you should expect instant growth, that there should just be this boom, sudden presence of massive spiritual fruit in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But it's good to ask yourself, have you seen any change in the things that you are living for? Is there any new desire to love God and obey Him? Is there any desire to set aside the things that you were once living for? Is there any sense of you know, burden and conviction when you sin and, and a sense of gratitude that in Christ you're forgiven? And if not, if that's completely absent, that doesn't characterize who you are, then I would challenge you to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Is there even the beginning of the fruit of genuine faith as demonstrated by those twin realities of faith and repentance? But what if you've been a Christian for a long time? Then the challenge I want to present to you is to ask yourself, am I more concerned about my leaves or my spiritual fruit? Am I more concerned about what people see on the outside than what's happening on the inside? Like these Pharisees, along with the teachers of the law and the scribes, am I more concerned about keeping the outside of the cup clean and doing my best to hide the muck that is on the inside? To not let anyone get too close to really see what's going on in my heart. And if that's the case then you need to be challenged to repent. Now, there's good news in this passage. We're going to come to it at the end. But I'm praying that right now you will feel a sense of the heaviness of what's being unfolded before, what's unfolding here before us. And a sense of the weightiness of the prospect of coming judgment. Because Jesus Christ will return and all will be judged and only those found in Christ will endure the great and dreadful day of the coming of the Lord. You know, part of what we need in our lives and part of what has been lacking over the course of the last year is the help of others to discern whether or not Fruit is being born in our lives. In other words, discipleship has taken a hit. If you're not in a growth group, I hope you will get into a growth group. Some are meeting in person in socially distanced ways. Uh, most are meeting online, but still, you are able to be in a closer relationship and offer, if you are courageous enough to do so, a level of appropriate transparency that, so that people can see in that trusted circle what's going on in your heart in order to offer both affirmation. God's doing something in you. I've seen it over the course of these months and years as we've walked together. Or caution. I don't see any discernible change in you in this way and I'm concerned about that. I want to come back again to this image that I so often use. It's the difference between a snapshot and a video. 
If you took a picture of me at any given moment, there may not be evidence within the frame or that one shot of much fruit in my life. And the same may be true for you as well. However, if the video of our life, if the course of your life over the years doesn't show any evidence of fruit that's emerging and growing, such that you are more loving than you once were, or you are more patient than you once were, or you are more kind than you once were, or, or gentle, or the like, then there's reason to be concerned. Then in fact you're making a show of something, and the substance or the reality is lacking. We need other people to help us with this. We're so easily deceived, self-deceived into thinking we're really growing up just great. And we need other people to help us. Help encourage us toward growth and help us discern whether or not fruit is growing. So the barren tree. But let's turn second to the barren temple. Take a look at verses 15 through 19 with me. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? All right, so what's happening there? Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that in AD 65, so you know, 30 years after this, it was estimated that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. It was also estimated that same year that over 600,000 sheep had been sold for the purpose of the sacrifices. Not to mention the pigeons that are referenced here, which were for those who were poor and couldn't afford a larger animal to offer as a sacrifice. And so you had these pilgrims coming in from all around the surrounding area. And there's a certain coin that was only permitted to pay what was known as the temple tax. And then there were animals that were to be offered as sacrifices. Now, it wasn't realistic for everyone to bring their animals with them to Jerusalem. And so they would bring money and purchase the animals that were, you know, approved by the high priests and the Sanhedrin for sacrifice, considered pure and without blemish. They could, at a markup, purchase animals there for sacrifice. They could also, at a hefty exchange rate, bring their money from wherever they lived into this area and exchange it for the coin that was permitted to pay the temple tax. Again, an often exorbitant price hike. And then there was the area in which this was all taking place. Jesus refers to it in, in quoting from the Old Testament, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Other gospel writers help us recognize, and also the testimony of history, that what was happening was happening in what was known as the court of the Gentiles. So this was the area outside the temple you know, proper, but within the temple precincts, that was about 300 yards by 250 yards. It was huge. I'm not sure the acreage. I didn't do that math or conversion in my head. I couldn't if I tried. 
but it was big, this huge area. That was as far as the Gentiles who wanted to know and worship the God of Israel could go. Gentiles were supposed to be able to go there and worship God. That's why Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That was the place in which Israel was to be drawing people. And that was where they were to worship. And that was where the 600,000 plus sheep were being sold. And the money changers were doing their work. And not only that, it says that Jesus wouldn't let people carry anything through the temple. It was a shortcut for people to get from one side of the area to the other. Instead of going around what should have been this sacred space for the Gentiles, people would, I mean, just imagine, you know, if there's a door there and a door there, and people in Rochester were just like passing through while I was trying to preach, it would be very distracting. And so you had this massive amount of noise, right? You know, consider like, you know, my county fair back home, there was everything but the, Tractor pull. That was a thing in southeast Michigan. I don't know if that's a thing here. And it was Wall Street in all of its chaos because of the money changing and the changing of hands of uh, you know, animals for, for money. It was chaos. It was not what it was meant to be. And so Jesus pronounced a curse. He cleared the area Momentarily, it was a place where the Gentiles could worship. But I believe it's in Mark chapter 12, he's going to tell us that no stone on this temple will be left on another. And of course, in AD, chapter, in AD 70, that's exactly what will happen. The temple will be destroyed. The temple is barren. Oh, there were plenty of leaves. You know, the, the high priests and the, the Sanhedrin and even the Jews who were there offering worship were making a great show of their devotion to God. And yet, their lack of true worship that included a burden for the nations revealed that there was no true fruit. So again, I come back to what I said earlier. Where is the temple of Christ today? Well, at one level, his temple, the temple is his body. He said that in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Let me, let me read it. The Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so there's the sense in which the temple of God is the person of Christ now ascended into heaven. But his temple, as we've seen, is here on earth. It is his church. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, do you not know that you, church in Corinth, Paul was saying, or you, Grace Church in Rochester, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells among you? Or Peter in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, As you come to him, a living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
What's true of the church is also true of every Christian, as I mentioned earlier. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so again, the question, what, what does Jesus find? What do his eyes fall upon? Grace Church. And what do his eyes fall upon, individual Christian? What is he looking for? He's looking for the fruit of genuine faith. And we see that at the end of our passage in verses 20 through 25. Let's read that together. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now stop for just a second. You would expect Jesus to say, yeah, it's withered because of what we just saw yesterday in the temple. He doesn't go and explain what had happened. He offers hope and encouragement and teaching about how to avoid the same. He says to Peter, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. All right, so let's unpack this. I want to say that the fruit of genuine faith, as we see it in this passage, can be described as true worship, as believing prayer, and as forgiveness from the heart. Now the true worship is in contrast to what they had seen the day before. Obvious false worship. There was no love for God that was evidenced by love for neighbor. The Gentiles were not given their place to worship. They weren't welcomed into relationship with the one true living God. So for all the pomp and circumstance of the, of the Jews in the temple... There was no love for the Gentiles who wanted to know Israel's God. And so, true worship, genuine devotion to God that finds expression in love for neighbors such that our desire is to see these people who don't know Jesus know the Jesus who we love that was lacking and it ought to be found in every one of us. So true worship, but second, believing prayer. I just read this passage in which it would seem on the surface that Jesus is saying, you know what, if you want a mountain moved, just pray with faith, and if you have enough faith, that mountain will be moved. And I want to remind you that that's not what he's saying. First of all, the, the mountain in the Old Testament was symbolic. You see this especially in Isaiah. Symbolic of that which seemed impossible, was in fact impossible for man, but not impossible for God. And so Jesus is saying, essentially here, these things that you consider to be impossible, they are possible for God. And so ask, believing that God can do that which is impossible. Because all things are possible for God. Now we say, okay, great. Then Given that, I'm, I'm going to very specifically pray for these things that I want 
in my life. I want to have these things from God. Remember when Jesus taught, taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane would ultimately pray, not my will, but thy will be done. And so what's happening here in Jesus' teaching on prayer as we understand it in light of Jesus' teaching on, on prayer elsewhere is that we are to pray believing that God can accomplish His will no matter how impossible it seems to us. In other words, one of the fruits of Christian maturity is an increasing, is an increasing ability to pray for things that accord with the will of God. Right? As you read God's Word, as you grow in your faith, there's a corresponding increase in your ability to pray for that which is the will of God and an increasing willingness to submit whatever, to whatever is in fact the will of God. A decrease in anxiety because you realize that God's will is best and that God in fact can be trusted to do the impossible. We prayed this morning for a mountain to be moved in Jorge's life at this moment. And it is right to pray that way. But with that, we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We come before God knowing that He can do what seems to us impossible. But we do so asking that God would do the thing that is right according to His will without wavering in our confidence that He will, in fact, do so. That's believing prayer. True worship, believing prayer, and then forgiveness from the heart. Now, I see that in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What I, what I see here, I especially love the fact that Jesus says when you stand praying. Because you have in that image a person whose orientation is toward God. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his own. And so there's this sense that we have as a picture here, a person who is before God in prayer, certainly confessing their own sin, and knowing that Jesus is interceding for us always, and remembering someone who has sinned against us, and in light of the fact that we have been forgiven much, being ready to forgive as a reflection of what has happened. And if there's not a willingness to forgive, what's being exposed, perhaps, is an absence of fruit an absence of the fact that you've really come under the forgiving grace of God. So the genuine fruit of faith, as we see it in this passage, and can be packed up, you know, unpacked in other ways in other passages of Scripture, but here, true worship, believing prayer, and forgiveness from the heart. I want to come back to the mountain for a minute. Just remember, the mountain is symbolic of something that seems impossible to us, but is possible with God. 
And I want you to ask yourself, just reflect for a moment, what is that mountain in your life? What is that mountain in your life that you believe is impossible to move? But with God is possible, in fact, to move. That thing that seems impossible for you to overcome, that in fact is possible for the God who is able to overcome everything. You have that in your mind? Let's ask a second question What is the mountain that Jesus is referring to in this passage? And the answer. As Jesus and, the P- and Peter and the disciples looked upon this withered fig tree? The answer is this. Anything that would come between you and genuine worship of me. Anything that would come between you and genuine faith in me. <clears throat> anything that would come between you, anything from within you that would get in the way of you coming to me. Ask, and I will commit myself, Jesus is saying, to your sanctification, to your transformation into my image, to the fruit of my spirit that indwells you being born in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, my pledge to you is that you and your body and you all as the church will in fact grow up into maturity in Christ. You will bear fruit. And you will know me. I don't know what was in your mind as you pictured that mountain, that thing that seems impossible, that if God could move that one thing. But I want to encourage you that this mountain that Jesus is referring to, if that mountain were to be moved, And you can have the confidence that in Christ it is. Then you will in fact experience greater joy than any other mountain that you would seek to have moved. In fact, in the valley in which that mountain that you had in your mind is not moved, you can experience true and lasting joy because you find that Jesus is with you in that valley. And so may it be that our prayer is not, Jesus, change the circumstance in my life, but Lord Jesus, help me see that you are with me here and that you will one day call me home. Nothing will get between me and you. He laid down his life in order for that to be true. And the evidence was all around them in the temple. The bleeding of the sheep, the noise. I wonder what Jesus thought knowing what would happen at the end of that week. All this will be silenced. And all the chaos in our hearts will be silenced. And the fruit that we long for will be born because Jesus died and He rose and He he will return. Let's pray.